Welcome to the High Point Baptist Church Sermon Cast, expository Bible sermons from the preaching and teaching ministry of High Point Baptist Church in Larksville, Pennsylvania, for the glory of God and the proclamation of His Word. We thank you for listening. And now, High Point Baptist Church pastor-teacher, Pastor Matt Tarr. Bow with me, would you, in a word of prayer before we come together once again tonight in the ministry of the Word. Father, we do thank you, Lord, for this precious time that we have with one another uh, to continue to learn uh, from your truth all that you desire for us, and in particular tonight in the discipline of sanctification and the proper exercise of our self-restraints and the exercise of our liberties and um, as we serve one another in love. And we pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. Well, I do invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm thankful to Greg who uh, covered for me the last two Sunday evenings for us. And in case you had forgotten, we've been progressing along in 1 Corinthians. We're going to conclude chapter 9 tonight, but we've been talking about a proper and biblical use of liberty. This is an important discussion because in the Corinthian context, of course, the the abuse of the exercise of their Christian liberties had an adverse effect on the body of the Corinthian church. It had created an environment that wasn't serving one another in love, but rather was self-serving and demanding the free exercise of their liberties and their rights, much as we experience in evangelicalism today. But what we also have been learning in the Corinthian context is how much that affected their evangelism. And so even, Paul writes, uh, we are as believers to exercise our rights to restrict our Christian liberties in order not to be an unnecessary hindrance for the gospel. And of course, for Paul, by illustration, what that meant for him is what we'll see tonight is that he would beat his body into severe subjection so that in the end he would not be disqualified for the prize. We're looking at the proper exercise of our Christian liberty. And in verse 24, Paul picks up on an important virtue that should characterize really every believer as he models his life for us. And follow along with me as I read. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? So run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified." You might say that this is the forgotten text in the Christian liberty debate. The point is here that self-discipline ought to affect every aspect of our lives as Christians. This is a text about self-discipline and how that relates to our Christian liberties. 
And if self-discipline ought to affect every aspect of our lives as Christians, and that's true, then we should have no great difficulty disciplining ourselves in this area of Christian liberty either. It would be natural to us at that point. In fact, it would make sense to us exercise discipline because we see the spiritual fruit of disciplining other aspects of our lives. And so we would then recognize that there would be great fruit in heaping up eternal reward in the restriction of our Christian liberties uh, and self-disciplining ourselves to that end too. And so even though this discourse on discipline is in the context of Christian liberty and evangelism, and serving the church and how serving the church or the lack thereof, your lack of self-discipline in order to serve the church affects your Christian evangelism. Uh, this text itself also is, is universal. Paul's language is universal and comprehensive, which means that self-discipline is a way of life for him. And he's holding this out as a mandatory model for, for both you and me. This goes beyond just the issue of liberty. It goes beyond just the issue of evangelism. But it is what characterizes us. And it's obvious that Paul is greatly, he's tremendously concerned because where we lack discipline in some aspect of our lives, it will have negative consequences on our spiritual lives. And since we are all individual members of the body of Christ, your lack of discipline will have, to one degree or another, negative consequences on the body of Christ as well. When you think about it, the issue of self-discipline is incredibly consistent with the concept of the slave, of the doulos, As believers, we don't have the freedom to live however we want to live. Naively believing that our lack of self-control doesn't affect anyone but ourselves. And so everything we do should be characterized by self-discipline. And indulgence is ultimately nothing short of a form of idolatry. Even the world recognizes the effects of self-discipline or the lack thereof and how those effects of discipline or the lack thereof have an effect on our society. One article I was reading this week uh, said that if you, if you want to be successful in anything you do in life, it begins with an inherent ability to exercise self-control and self-discipline. Interestingly enough... In a study led by Wilhelm Hoffman at the University of Chicago, this was, a, this was a study that was done in 2013. So the Wilhelm Hoffman, not to be confused with the uh, general, the German general in World War II, as I recall. But this, this was a, a study that was done on self-control. And it was listed as one of humankind's most valuable assets because the ability to refrain from acting on impulses results in a healthier and more proactive life. So even the world recognizes the benefits, the fruits of a self-disciplined life. 
We all recognize that no one achieves what we would refer to as perhaps the highest levels of accomplishment in society. You don't don't make it in professional sports. You don't become widely successful as a CEO or a businessman or anything of that nature without extreme self-discipline. You don't get to achieve success in life by living a frivolous, careless life. As much as the talking hairdos, perhaps on TV, would want us to think otherwise. That, that life can be handed to us on a silver platter. That's really not the way it works. And uh, this study by the University of Chicago discovered that those who are self-disciplined are more productive in the long term. That would come as no surprise to us, but they also don't waste time fighting internal battles over petty temptations. And it's interesting that they would put it in that way. But uh, in another article by the um, well-known website, Forbes said that self-discipline, the self-discipline don't allow their choices to be dictated by impulses or feelings. Instead, they make informed rational decisions on a daily basis and without getting upset or stressed about it. Now, folks, it's not to go out on a limb to say that that ought to be what defines the Christian. Rather than being carried along by every wind of doctrine, being tossed to and fro, uh, rather than uh, satisfying every lustly indulgence of the flesh, we're to be characterized by self-discipline. We're not allowing our, our petty emotions, our feelings to control who we are or the decisions we make or to stress us out or any of those things. Because we rest in the, theo- the, the, the sovereignty of God, we rejoice in the theology found in His Word, and we allow the Scriptures to inform our behavior and govern our behavior. That's the art of self-discipline. And so already we're beginning to see how a lack of self-discipline negatively affects our sanctification and our ministry in the church and our evangelism. Because we are self-disciplined, we are in control of our bodies and our emotions rather than letting our bodies and emotions control us. And you just think about it, but every sinful decision is ultimately a moral lapse in self-control. It's the gratification of your fleshly impulse rather than denying your flesh that satisfaction and determining to honor Christ instead. In Galatians 5.23, you remember uh, in Galatians 5, we find there the fruits of the Spirit. And do you remember what the last one is in Galatians 5.23? Last one is self-control. And commentaries will tell you that being listed last in no way makes the issue of self-control least among the fruits of the Spirit, but rather it has a position of prominence because you can say the prior uh, fruits of the Spirit are all culminated in the issue, the one single issue of self-control. This summarizes all of those things. 
All of those fruits of the Spirit are ultimately a matter of self-control. And of course, self-discipline and self-control are really two sides of the same coin. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, you remember this. Paul says that God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. So discipline ought to characterize the Christian life. It is a virtue that ought to characterize the Christian life, the life of the believer. Sophronismos is the word in 2 Timothy 1.7. That means self-discipline. This is not talking about discipline there in the context of the, the discipline of the Lord. Though you will exercise either self-discipline or be disciplined by the Lord. But it's a matter of the spiritual governing the physical, and where the Spirit doesn't govern the physical, we become easy targets for sin. So as unpopular as the subject of self-discipline is in an overindulged society such as we live in today, uh, your growth in personal holiness is largely dependent on your self-discipline. It is largely determined by the extent of your self-discipline. Some of the best books on discipleship, which you're probably, you've probably read or are very familiar with if you haven't read, are Disciplines for the Christian Life by Donald Whitney and Disciplines of Godly Man by R. Ken Hughes. Excellent books. But you can't even begin to administer any of those disciplines if you don't first have self-discipline. Steve Lawson wrote in an article for Legionnaire Ministries, if there is no discipline, there is no discipleship. And so if there is no discipleship because there's no discipline, then we can understand how that would have an adverse reaction on the church because the church has been called to discipleship and at the same time, that would adversely affect our evangelism. Because who do we make disciples of? The lost. As we call them to repent and believe in the true gospel. So if there is no discipline, there is no discipleship. Steve Lawson's right. You will either be self-disciplined or you will be disciplined by the Lord, as we said. It's, it's so important. And that's why one of the qualifications for the overseer, according to Titus chapter 1, verse 8, is that he models self-discipline and self-control. And we have no better model for self-discipline and self-control than in the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. But it's been said that this... This passage of Scripture is so contradictory to the seeker-sensitive philosophy of ministry that we have experienced for so long that to preach it is really actually a good way of shrinking your church. One pastor even said, if you have a problem of too few seats in your church that are available to your people... This is a cheap 
an easy way of resolving that issue. Because you can't preach 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27 without stepping on people's toes, without confronting believers in the sin of complacency. Believers who are content to just sort of show up and just sort of muddle along in the Christian life, spinning their wheels and just coasting down the hills. That is, in, that is completely inappropriate for the Christian. Not only is it inappropriate, but it is inexcu- inexcusable given the nature of the gospel itself. We'll comment later that that is, in fact, contradictory to the gospel. So self-discipline for the believer is a gospel-related issue. And to demonstrate the extent of self-discipline in all things, Paul describes in his personal life, he, he gives his personal discipline as an example, and by illustration, his personal discipline models the, well, it's not a professional athlete, much like in the Olympics today, the Olympics today, to qualify, you have to be an amateur athlete. And um, in the same context of the ancient Roman world, to compete in, um, in uh, the Ismian Games, which would be the context here, you had to be an amateur athlete, but you had to be the best. You had to be the best of the best of the athletes. And so he, he lays himself out. In our context, we would say that the Christian ought to model the level of discipline that we would expect from a world-class athlete. That's what the Christian life should look like. And, and by the way, Paul says, <laughs> look at my life, because my life does look like the self-discipline of a world-class athlete. And if you think that is limited in some way to one particular aspect of my life versus another, I'm disciplined in all things. Because likewise, the world-class athlete. There is no aspect of my life that I have the freedom to give loose reins. There is no dichotomy in Paul's mind between the kinds of things where Christians need to exercise discipline and where we don't need to exercise discipline. He, he is an athlete in training to win the prize like every believer. And sometimes we'll, we'll try to do that as Christians. We'll rationalize some aspect of our lives that we know lacks self-discipline and self-restraint, but we say, oh, well, that's just a temporal matter. That's just a physical thing. It's unspiritual. Or th- this thing over here that I, have, I can't exercise self-restraint in and self-discipline in, that's not going to have a negative consequence on my spiritual life. I can go on quite happily, in fact, as a mature Christian, while my life is unruly in whatever regard, whether it's overindulgence in entertainment or perhaps an obsession with uh, one thing that is popular among students in particular, an obsession with a 4.0 GPA, such that uh, in their discipline there, they rationalize a lack of discipline in serving the church. They prioritize their education before their ministry in the church. 
And so they actually have a very self-centered, indulgent mentality towards their education and are undisciplined. Others are perhaps undisciplined in their appetites. Others undisciplined in their recreation. And the list can go on and on. But we are fools to think that a lack of discipline in any one area is, is not going to have any effect on our spiritual lives. It most certainly will. I mean, because we say it's not like reading my Bible every day, you know, so <laughs> what does it matter? But which is more difficult? We need to ask ourselves that. Exercising discipline in unspiritual things, or maybe I would say ah spiritual things, things that don't have any intrinsic spiritual value, if that makes sense. They're, they're amoral, they're neither good nor bad. Is it harder to exercise discipline in, in those things or self-discipline in the spiritual things? Just arguing from the lesser to greater here, if you can't exercise self-discipline in little things, the things that are all spiritual... How are you going to exercise discipline in greater things, the things that are spiritual? Well, that's obvious to the athlete. It's obvious to the athlete that if he can't exercise self-discipline in in the lesser things of life, uh, then he's not going to be able to exercise discipline when it's time to lace up on the track. And perhaps at the point of excruciating pain, tell his legs, you will continue to run. I will not stop. In fact, it's only natural to him to exercise that kind of discipline. And that's why in verse 25, Paul says, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. In all things. Not just those things directly related to the, to the race and even the little things. Every aspect of an athlete's life has to come under rigorous training and his lifestyle required the strictest discipline. Even in my, my own short and uh, inadmirable career as an athlete, uh, the intensity of the competition meant that there was no time in your life that, that you were not an athlete. You didn't walk off the track and then all of a sudden you didn't need to be concerned about self-discipline anymore. You, you, you were no longer identified as an athlete. You weren't given that luxury. From the time you signed the contract, that was it. You were, in effect, a slave of the university that you represented. They told you what time you had to go to bed. They told you what you could eat and what you could not eat. They told you the calories that you had to eat. They told you uh, what your uh, BMI uh, ratio was appropriate and what it had to be and what it couldn't be. And uh, they told you what things you could do as recreation and what things you couldn't do as recreation outside the context of your competition. And um, they told you the consequences should you be in violation of your contract. They even would tell you who you could go out to eat with and who you couldn't go out to eat with, who could buy you a meal and who couldn't buy you a meal. Those are some of the NCAA regulations 
and that were required for that. But by the time you signed the contract, you didn't stop being an athlete. You were in a very real way owned by them. You subjected yourself to a letter of rule. One that required discipline. Everything was monitored for optimum efficiency, and we'd get an efficiency report sent out by our coaches, every single person on the team, every other week. Matt Tarr, uh, 92% of his optimal uh, performance or something like that. And not only would I know that, but those numbers would actually be sent to every single person on the team. So everybody on the team would know if you were performing at your optimum efficiency or if you, were, uh, if you weren't giving your very best. You were actually letting the team down, as you will, as it were. <clears throat> your sleep was monitored, like I said. What you ate, what you, when you ate it was monitored. And we didn't stop being athletes just because we walked off the track. And about six weeks before we go to our conference meetings, I remember all the decathletes would have to start getting up for these runs at 4 a.m. because for conference, the decathlon would start at 8, and we had to start warming up four hours before that, and we needed to give our bodies time to adjust so that we would be prepared. Our bodies would uh, be uh, it would expect to be put under rigorous exercise early in the hours of the morning, and it was strenuous, and, and that's the life of the athlete. And, and what Paul says should be the life of the Christian. The strenuous life of the athlete is not restricted to game time. What happens at game time is determined by everything that happens in the hours before and after. What he does with his body then is what counts. And so just as the athlete severely restricts his personal liberties, the Christian is known as one who restricts rather than exercises his, personally, his personal liberties. Liberties are for spectators. Liberties are for recreational athletes at best. They're certainly not for the professional athlete or the world-class athlete, the serious athlete that wants to win. Now, like we said, when the Corinthians would have been given this illustration, they would have been quaint, uh, you know, uh, very familiar with the Ismian Games, and that's what they would have had in mind, which are very similar to the Olympic Games that were held in Athens. In the Ismian Games... Athletes would receive a pine wreath uh, rather than a, a wreath that was made of the deciduous olive leaves, but it was a pine wreath, and it would last a little bit longer than perhaps the deciduous counterpart. But these pine wreaths would still weather away, uh, wither away, and and they would die. And but they would be given this crown, and then they would be immortalized as the winner. They would be celebrated. They would parade all around the city of Corinth, and, and this is what they would have had in mind. And it is very likely, in fact, we believe that the, one of these games was being held at the time of this writing. So when the Corinthians would have received this letter, they would have had the illustration living before them. They'd been able to see them. They'd been watching. Everybody would be cheering them. And just to qualify... To be able to compete, athletes would have to prove a record. Of, they would have to show a record of rigorous training that went on for 10 months before the games begin. 
And during the last month, then they would have to move to the city of Corinth, which means that they would have to find the support to be able to do so, so that they could continue to sustain themselves, have a place to live, and so on and so forth. And during that final month in Corinth, they would have supervised daily workouts in the fields and gymnasium, and and those would be monitored as as well. They would ensure that all the athletes were competing according to the rules. And no one would want to do that. No one would want to train so hard for almost a year without the intention of winning the race. And there were a lot of athletes. But regardless, they they weren't doing this for second place. There was no first place loser. There were winners and losers. That was it. No one would want to do that. Train so hard for so long without intending to win. Or to just sort of casually take an approach of, well, that was a fun experience. Maybe I'll try that again sometime. The sacrifice was too great. And so winning was the goal. So they exercised tremendous discipline. They did whatever it takes to that end. And so you can believe that no one just walked on the field on the day of the games looking like they just sort of rolled out of bed after a first century video game marathon, whatever that would be, and eating nothing but Greek yogurt for 10 months. No, the extent of their discipline was obvious to everyone. They were physically fit. They were cut for a purpose. And so Paul asks, if they can exercise such tremendous self-discipline for a perishable wreath, why can't Christians exercise that kind of discipline in all things for an imperishable wreath. What's the problem, in other words? Again, Paul said in 1 Timothy 4, verse 7, discipline, or you could translate that as the word train, train yourselves for the purpose of godliness. The fact that only one wins the prize is a stern warning to many who are just half-hearted, undisciplined Christians who do very little to train for spiritual victory. What one pastor said, our out-of-shape believers with flabby faith, spiritual couch potatoes with bulging spiritual waistlines whose lifestyle is self-indulgent due to their lack of self control. Being self-disciplined doesn't mean that you exercise self-discipline by restricting all of your liberties 100% of the time, every time. That defeats the nature of discipline too, but it means that you're characterized by discipline and you always restrict your liberties sometimes. You restrict your liberties always when it's going to have an adverse effect on what you've been called to do. And you're calling to serve the church, to evangelize the lost, to grow in holiness, 
in likeness of Christ in truth. You'll readily give up anything that's going to compromise those things. And so 100% of the time you give those things up, that's self-discipline. But look, one scoop of ice cream isn't going to have an adverse effect on any athlete, realistically. But a consistent diet of ice cream certainly would. So it is with the Christian life. Some liberties may perhaps affect you more than others, and some liberties may be required given a particular context to be given up altogether. But victory always comes with a price, and we've been called to serve the king, and that's really the race that has been set before us as individual Christians. That, that's our race, serving the king. Now, I, I want you to understand, make sure you know that we're not competing against other Christians here. That's not what Paul has in view. So there's, well, you might be saying, well, how in the world am I going to set myself up against, the, against Paul? In fact, Paul seems to already articulate in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that he knows he won the prize. So if Paul in inspired Scripture said that he won the prize and there's only one winner, then, I mean, why am I bothering here? Because he's got it. I mean, if we're all just running the race as Christians, then that must mean that I'm competing against other Christians. And Paul says he won, he gets the prize, so, well, I, I guess I am just along for the ride then. But that's not the idea. We're competing against the things that'll hinder us in serving Jesus Christ. Laying aside every encumbrance and sin that so easily entangles us. The idea is very similar. 1922 Olympics, um, when Eric Little broke the world record in the 400 meter, it was considered at that time um, to be impossible. It was humanly impossible to sprint for a full 400 meter race, a quarter mile. And Eric Little, who is featured in uh, the well-known film Chariots of Fire, was a Christian. And um, being a 100-meter runner who strained his hamstring playing rugby, it's a little-known fact that he was actually a world-class rugby player and um, was considered one of the best, not one of, he was considered to be the best athlete in the world. And so he he injured his hamstring playing rugby and... um, as a result of that, he began training a year before the 400 meter, but began training to sprint the entire thing. It was considered an impossibility, and he was, he was seated well low at the 1922 Olympics to run that race and win. And um, the individual who was picked to win, as he was coming around, those lanes used to be, uh, now it's, it's just a paint stripe on the track, obviously, but back then there was a string that was mounted on the tops of stakes all around the track to divide the lanes, and the string would rest about a foot high. And if, if, if an athlete deviated just a little bit from his course, he could easily become entangled and snared in that string that had an otherwise good purpose, but it caught him up, and this particular athlete fell in the track. He lost. Eric Little set the world record that stood for another 10 years because 
coaches, even after Eric Little accomplished that feat, still refused to believe that it was humanly possible to, to do what Eric Little did. But nevertheless, what entangles you can be sinful or it might be an amoral thing, but it is a thing in which you lack self-discipline. And because of this thing that you have the freedom to do, the, the string that divides the lanes is being a good thing. It's neither good nor evil. It's just there. But because of your lack of self-discipline and it's being able to stay focused and fixed on your race before you, you become tangled up, you tripped up. And now because of your self-discipline, you've fallen, you've lost the race. That's the idea. Or sin, obviously, could certainly disqualify you from, from the race. And Paul says, then I, in verse 27, I discipline my body and make it my slave. Why? So that, well, so that, that doesn't happen. So whether it's physical, spiritual, or practical is what Paul has in view here. He's not ruling out bodily discipline. He's not talking about just uh, spiritual discipline here. He's saying all aspects of our lives. In fact, we've already seen early in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the importance of body, bodily discipline there in the context of sexual purity. So, so we, are, we are physically disciplined. We are spiritually disciplined. We are practically disciplined. That's what characterizes us, disciplined period, in all things. Now, we have the liberty in Christ to pursue things and do things that are not forbidden in Scripture, but we can't afford to let anything have mastery over us so that we're no longer the ones under control, but instead become subject to our bodies. Paul says again in verse 27, I discipline my body and make it my slave. The word for discipline means beat. I beat it. To strike in the face, give a black eye. That's what the word would be translated as. It's, it's not going to be comfortable in other words. It's not easy. But Paul can't afford to take a hands-off, passive approach to his Christian service, and neither can we. When Mel and I did a triathlon together a couple of years ago, we did this just because we thought it would be fun. It was sort of fun, but I almost drowned, and um, I'm not a particularly good swimmer, and I knew that going into the race, but beyond that, the biking was fun, and the running was kind of fun. So we did this triathlon, and I remember talking to a guy at the starting line, and uh, let's just say he didn't look very athletic. It didn't look like he had trained for the triathlon. Just by his physical stature alone, you could tell he wasn't very committed to the race, and uh, he said, yeah, so uh, a bunch of buddies and I, we got drunk at a party, and we made a bet. I lost the bet, and because I lost the bet, I had to sign up for this triathlon. And to be honest, I completely forgot about the whole thing until I got this letter in the mail telling me when to report, what I was supposed to do when I showed up, and all of this. And he goes, oh, yeah. Well, you know something? He didn't win. I don't even know if he finished the race. But a lot of Christians think they can run their spiritual lives that way. Unprepared, careless, undisciplined. Just short, sort of show up without any discipline, any sort of preparation, any training, and come out in any sense of decency, win honorably. Just have it handed to them. 
It's not the way life works. It's not the way your sanctification works. It's not the way that serving the body works. We beat our bodies into subjection. Yesterday, John had a soccer game, and I really, I really do love sports because I think in sports you, you have rich opportunities for discipleship. They reveal sinful issues of the heart. They are great environments to instruct self-discipline. So even John, six years old, we took the opportunity to be able to start teaching him some of those things. And um, yesterday, John had a soccer game, and it was a lot of fun to watch for the first two minutes or so. And then all of a sudden, we noticed that John just sort of stopped playing. And he would just casually and lightly jog behind everybody else. You know, it's, it's just sort of beehive soccer at, at this stage in life anyway. But here's everybody, and here's John back here, just slowly following along behind them. And Mel and I look at each other like, what's he doing? Is he chasing fairies on the field? Well, we don't know, but he's not chasing the ball. He's just not into this. And, um, and at one point, John, John just kind of came to a stop, and the ball sort of popped out of the little beehive, came right over him, bounced off his feet, and John just looked down, watches it bounce off his feet, and the ball continues on. And he doesn't move. And so after the game, I asked John, John, why did you stop playing? And uh, really, I, I was concerned simply because it was, it was somewhat obvious that John wasn't doing his best, and, and that's irresponsible. And even from his young age, I'd, I'd want to teach him the nature of responsibility and commitment, commitment to his team, uh, among other things. And so use this as an occasion to teach him some spiritual virtues. And John just said, my legs got tired. And I said, oh, well, what you need to do then next time is you just have to tell your legs, you don't tell me when you're tired, I tell you when you're tired. And so in a trivial sort of way, that's the idea. Your body can't be master over you. You're the master over your body, and you beat it into subjection and make it your slave. We make it our slave, and that means we exercise discipline in those areas like money, time, food, drink, exercise, sleep, recreation, entertainment. But most Christians are, in fact, slaves of their bodies rather than their bodies being slaves of them. They don't beat their bodies into subjection, making it their slave. They're slaves of their bodies. Their bodies tell them when to sleep and how much to sleep, when to eat and how much to eat, when to exercise and when not to exercise, when to recreate and when to stop, when to be entertained and when to stop, when to serve the church and when to stop. This is a matter of qualification and disqualification from the prize. In the context of 1 Corinthians 9, they're disqualified from being an effective witness. And ultimately, for no other reason than that they were unwilling to pay the price of being a Christian athlete. That's so unfortunate. You think about it. Again, how contradictory to the gospel is an undisciplined Christian life. Here's Jesus Christ. 
who sacrificed his life in order to purchase you with his own blood. But for you to sacrifice your liberties is too great a thing. For Paul, it's all or nothing. Because you know something? It's not a game. We're not talking about receiving some kind of imperishable wreath. We're not talking about a soccer match where you're up by two. We're talking about life and death, heaven and hell. To say, well, I have all this stuff to do. I've got all this stuff going on with my family. I have all these priorities at work. And and we make all these excuses for why we can't discipline ourselves, serve the body, evangelize the lost. We give up our Christian liberties for the sake of those things. All those excuses for why we can't discipline ourselves. That is a completely foreign language to Paul and the rest of Scripture. We're not jogging the Christian life. Whenever you're doing exegesis, whenever you're studying Scripture, one of the main things that you need to do is find the main verb. You know what the main verb is? In this text, it's run. Run. We're not jogging the Christian life. We're running. And running defines this whole passage. Exhausting yourselves in the Christian service is what defines the Christian. So let's run. And close in prayer. We're going to go and transition into our time together in corporate worship and prayer. And uh, following the format that we have for the last several weeks, we will, um, I'll lead you in prayer of thanksgiving, after which Greg will come up and lead us as well, followed by Tom and Robert. We'll give you time in between just to break out into your smaller groups and just enjoy one another in prayer together, fellowshipping with one another in prayer as well uh, until the next individual comes up before we dismiss you. Let's, let's thank the Lord for all that he's given to us. Father, we are so thankful, Lord. We are responsible to respond to your gospel call. We understand that, Lord. We're responsible to obey you, your command. We're responsible to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. But Lord, we also recognize that our salvation and our sanctification is all your work. And we look at the when we look at the life that you have called us to live, a life that is characterized like Christ, very simply put, being like Christ, we realize the high standard, the high standard of discipline. 
And that kind of discipline is impossible apart from your grace. We're so thankful then for the grace that you have given to us. That you have given us everything that we need to live in a way that is pleasing in your sight. That you have given us the opportunity to serve you and your body, our Lord in the church. Build one another up in love and that we can look forward with great hope and anticipation for the prize that you have set before us should we prove to be faithful. And Lord, we pray for much fruit. We thank you for the fruit that you have given to us and we pray for much more. And we pray that we would continue to grow in our self-discipline in order that we would bear more fruit. And we ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. You've been listening to the expository Bible teaching of our pastor-teacher, Pastor Matt Tarr, on the High Point Baptist Church Sermon Cast, and we pray you have been blessed by what you've heard. If you have any questions about the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, or if you would like to speak with someone concerning salvation through faith, please reach out to us right away. It would be a great joy and blessing to minister to you. Contact information can be found on our website. If you have any additional questions or comments regarding this sermon, would like to know more about our church, or would like to submit a prayer request, just visit us online at highpointbaptist.church. Additional sermons can be found on the SermonCast page of our website and may be downloaded or streamed free of charge. Our website again is highpointbaptist.church. Thank you again for listening. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Copyright 2018, High Point Baptist Church, All Rights Reserved.